This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 225. Well, just ahead, Costco Wholesale keeps prices down. Customers coming in the door. And Wall Street is pissed. And Micron Technology says the end is near and that we may have seen the bottom, the end of the chip slowdown. And a fascinating conversation with Box CEO Aaron Levy taking a big jump into the deep pool of AI. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind some stocks in a move and helping me do that, of course. Siobhan Field joins us uh, from Australia. Siobhan, glad to have you. Hello. Good morning or good afternoon. How are you, Corey? Good morning for you. Good evening for me. It works. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. Down here in Sydney, Australia, it is the morning. So let's get into it. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Start with Carnival. Alrighty, Carnival Corp. It trades with the ticker CCL. Market cap of $18 billion. In the last 12 months, shares are up 47%. Wowza. What's the story with Carnival? So Carnival uh, is about to report earnings, and I thought it'd be interesting just to listen to what they said last quarter, because last quarter they were so worried about um, uh, recession. They were talking about basically their resilience. Um, here's a company that survived the pullout from China. They survived COVID incredibly. Uh, they think they can survive if there's a recession, yeah, they thought they could survive that. Maybe that's not so much in the cards now. Here we sit 13 weeks later. But they think they can survive rising mortgage rates and student loan repayments for some of their customers. And customers with less money in their pockets. So I thought, you know, uh, we so often look at the companies as soon as they tell us what's going on. I thought it'd be with this case, we're about to hear what's going on with Carnival in their most recent quarter. Let's hear what they said last time. Here's Carnival's CEO, Josh Weinstein, talking about how much cheaper it is to go to sea and to stay on land. Now, what I call it, I actually call it an outrageous and ridiculous value gap to land. Um, and that is a double-edged sword in our favor. Um, because if there is a slowdown and if hotels take their rates down a bit and airlines take their rates down a bit and resorts, whatever that might be, um, we are still outsized in our value. And as a result, if there is a recession, um, we stick out. We stick out for the right reasons because of how far your holiday dollar can go. And on top of that, because of our home porting strategy, with about 75% of our ships positioned where our guests don't have to get on a flight should they choose not to, that sets us up very, very well for people who are trying to figure out how to stretch their vacation 
dollars. So to be honest with you, um, you know, our focus on base loading for 2024 and pulling ahead with all of those factors uh, at our back, we feel quite good. And, and I, I'm, we probably said this in other calls, every, every recession is different. Um, this one happens to be one where there's record unemployment, people still wanting to purchase experiences, um, uh, particularly travel, which bodes, which bodes quite well for us. So they think that uh, difficult times ahead financially for their customers could actually be good for them because they're a good deal. Siobhan, have you ever done a cruise? I have. Yes, I've been on a couple of cruises. You have? Yes. I, uh, you sound surprised, Corey. Why? You couldn't get me on a cruise. Like I'm currently deciding whether I even want to go on a boat for like four hours during Fleet Week in San Francisco next week because I just can't. I don't know. I don't like going and getting on something. I can't decide when to get off. Yeah, I, I've had the same. I was married. <laughs> I'm sorry. What was that? You just <laughs> I was married once upon a time and I had trouble getting off that, as you may recall. I do recall. And, um, you know, interestingly, the first cruise and the only cruise I've ever been on was uh, with my ex-husband, too. So <laughs> we are both in the same boat, so to speak, Corey. So to speak. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Costco. Costco Wholesale. It trades with the ticker COST, market cap of about $251 billion. Shares were up just 2% in the last week, but for the last 12 months, shares are up 16%. So what is the story with Costco Wholesale? Well, the big story there was um, about inflation, and it was really the inflation that the analysts, at least on Wall Street, were really hoping that the company would jack up their revenues there by uh, boosting membership costs. They haven't done it in about six years. But when asked about it, the CEO said there were no immediate plans to raise membership fees, and even though it has been six years. Uh, but it wasn't just fee inflation that the market fretted over. Um, you, know, you would think with these guys giving their customers cheap prices, bringing lots of people in the front door, uh, keeping those, those costs of membership where they are, Wall Street would like that. But I, without that uh, inflation in the cost of um, uh, uh, the membership for Costco, Wall Street wasn't too thrilled about it, uh, but I thought it was really interesting what they had to say about the price inflation for the things that Costco sells. Uh, the CEO, uh, Rich Galanti, uh, Richard Galanti said that really inflation is just not happening so much and it's down to one to 2%, uh, a lot less than they've been seeing earlier in the year. Here's Costco Wholesale CEO, Richard Galanti. As we looked at the 17 weeks, if you were, the four months roughly, we saw, it, you know, if we looked at it internally at each of the end of those four months, we saw the level that one to two is from the beginning to the end of the year. Uh, or, I'm sorry, the beginning to the end of the quarter. But during the quarter, we saw that trending downward, if you will, a little. And when I talked to the merchants, uh, you know, uh, on the uh, on the on the on the fresh side, it's flat to down a little uh, right now. On the on the on the uh, food and sundry side, it's up a little, uh, uh, primarily in some of the CPG stuff. And on, on big ticket, or not big ticket, but on non-food, partly because of freight, which is down year over year in a nice way, uh, and in some cases, some of the commodity costs on steel and the like, that's come down. So that being said, not a big change, but at least it's trending that way. Who knows what tomorrow brings? As it relates to us, we're always pushing prices as fast as we can. We want to be the first to, to lower them when those things happen. I think we've seen that with our, uh, with our traffic. Now, I know, Siobhan, you wanted to know what was in my Costco uh, shopping cart, but uh, <laughs> lately it's just been gasoline because I've been driving everywhere. But uh, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. I haven't been to Costco in a little, in a little while either, but I did have one close to my house when I lived in Los Angeles. And, um, it's, it's hard not to find value at Costco. It is. So, uh, and you know, who doesn't need like 400 pounds of uh, walnuts and a, and a safe every once in a while? Yeah. You gotta have a lot of storage at your house. If you shop at Costco, that's what I find. <laughs> Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Micron Technology. Okay, Micron Technology Inc. It trades with the ticker MU with a market cap of about 71 bill. Shares were down 4% in the last week, but for the last 12 months, shares are up 28%. What's the story with Micron? 28%, impressive. Yeah, pretty impressive, uh, far outpacing the uh, the um, S&P 500 average. And I, and I think you know one of the things we're looking at here is really a company that um, where the, the stock price always reflects what's about to happen, not what just happened for Micron, more than I think any other company. Um, it's all about the future for this stock and it's all about the future for this company. And indeed, they, they, are, they have to think so far ahead uh, when they're building these semiconductor fabrication plants because the next technology takes four or five years to get together. They start building the plants even before the technology is ready and they are spending a fortune building uh, new semiconductor plants. So they talked about the current quarter and saying that their losses are, are going to continue. They're selling things, some things at negative gross margins, incredibly. But they think the big industry slump that's been weighing on really all the big memory chip makers, um, with the exception of kind of the, the high-end AI stuff, NVIDIA, obviously, um, they think that's over. And they think that they're going to start to recover. And indeed, they think their sales are going to be 4.2 to $4.6 billion. It's a little bit better than the $4.2 that Wall Street had, was guessing incorrectly at. Um, I was in Idaho last week, actually, Siobhan. You and, were? Um, hmm. I was. Um, and uh, in Idaho, there's a big uh, shortage of concrete. No one can get concrete because these guys are spending $15 billion manufacturing a new fab in Boise, a fabrication plant, which are called fabs in the chip business, in Boise. Uh, and that's going to be the first new memory manufacturing fab in the U.S. in 20 years. They're also going to spend $100 billion in New York, near Syracuse, New York, uh, the first phase of that investment, $20 billion by the end of this decade. It's the biggest private investment in the history of the state. Just incredible spending for this company, planning for the future. And uh, what was interesting to me is, you know, I always say you can change the fan belt whilst the engine runs, but it's hard. Well, they are trying to figure out how to uh, uh, slow down the utilization of some of their old equipment. Well, they start to ramp up some new equipment and even build the equipment for the future all that fan belt changing was the topic of conversation on the recent conference call. Here's Micron Technology Chief Business Officer Sumit Sadana. With this underutilized equipment and um, with the desire to be able to continue to migrate towards newer technology nodes to be able to support the product portfolio and to you know provide better um, you know uh, uh, performance uh, in the in the products to our customers. We, we have been um, uh, utilizing more of the uh, underutilized equipment towards converting to new nodes. Mm -hmm. As you do that, you are um, reducing the capacity baseline of, the, uh, of each factory where you're, where you're implementing that, right? So the wafer start mm -hmm. capability is coming down. But yeah. then as you're bringing those tools on and fully utilizing them in the longer process, you know, step counts of the newer nodes, the 
they're not really being underutilized anymore once they become part of the new reset lower capacity baseline. So as that happens, the amount that's sort of charged off the, towards underutilization or period costs is lowered gradually and because you're utilizing the equipment towards the newer nodes. And by oh, utilizing that equipment towards the newer node, we, we don't buy new equipment um, to uh, be able to maintain a higher production baseline capacity. So it helps us offset CapEx. It um, helps us utilize the equipment that we have so the, the period costs will gradually go down, as Marcus said. Um, but we do end up with lower production capacity at the end of the day, which obviously you know, isn't um, as cost effective as if we would have just maintained the full production capacity while we were doing the conversions, but it's more capital efficient to do it this way. So Siobhan, that's so important for this company and gross margins are all about the, not just using what they've got, but using it effectively and using it in a, in a way that's capitally efficient to get gross margins back up. They say that's going to happen right now. All right. That's good news. Uh, you know, that uh, you describing the story reminded me of The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen, a, a great book looking at yeah. you know, you need to maintain your existing revenue while preparing for innovation in the future. So very interesting. Absolutely. All right. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk to the CEO of Box, Aaron Levy, one of our favorite people, a uh, really interesting conversation, what these guys are doing in AI and how this business uh, has done so well um, when they've got so many competitors, really big competitors like Google and Microsoft and others. Yeah. Box is doing just fine. Thank you very much. Turning a profit. Finally, and really looking at ways to use AI to change business practices. Aaron Levy, right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight, ever. With ERA, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And welcome back to the Drill Down podcast. We're joined right now by the... Big shots at Box, Chief Technical Officer Ben Coos and Aaron Levy, uh, an old friend. Haven't seen you in a long time. Glad to have you on. Um, uh, it, I was thinking back to all these years ago when I was covering your company when long before the IPO, and um, you would come to the uh, the Bloomberg offices. Uh, we'd do an interview and you'd hang out in the office afterwards um, doing card tricks, uh, which you're an adept at. It's so, uh, your Twitter account, which is a must follow. I've never said that about a CEO before, but I think your Twitter account's a must-follow. Uh, identifies you as chief magician at Box as well. Are we even so doing Twitter? Keeping that up. Is, is Twitter still happening? I didn't know that. By the time we actually run this interview, perhaps not. I don't know. I think that the, the rats Ooh. are sinking, fleeing the ship there. We're going to be on some new Microsoft uh, Twitter Twitter clone next. So uh, it's... Uh, right. It's only a matter of time. Uh, you know, I... It's interesting because uh, I wanted to talk to you about artificial intelligence and what you guys are doing in AI. Um, but one of the things about what you're doing in AI is you've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we, we, we got our start in uh, certainly this space many years ago where we saw and identified this opportunity. You know, we have, uh, you know, tens of billions of documents, um, tens of billions of images inside a box. And every single one of those individual items has so much more value inside them than, than users are, are even able to interact with or leverage at any given time. So there's a tremendous amount of knowledge and insights and, and um, decisions that are available for people within their information. And so 
Uh, we explored a, a technology path that would let us connect to any AI model anytime. Um, and we've been doing that now for a number of years. And there's now this recent breakthrough with large language models that has just accelerated uh, the potential. And that's when we announced Box AI, which we're super excited about. And Ben will obviously get into to more um, as, uh, as we talk about it. Well, Ben, Ben, talk to me about that. What, what has changed in the last six months? Um, certainly the, the awareness has changed. But what's from a technical, from a, from a product creation standpoint for, as a chief technical officer there, what, is, what has changed uh, for yeah. you? Um, an awful lot. Um, so when, as Aaron mentioned, uh, AI's been around for a while. In fact, it's kind of almost confusing to a lot of people because we use the word AI, which has been around since like 1950s. Um, and But there's definitely like an older AI and like a newer AI in terms of how we certainly um, from Box and certainly in relation to um, enterprise content um, uh, approach things. So the big distinction we always make is like um, in the in the world we, of AI in the past, we used to always take a bunch of data and then try to structure it, try to make like, you know, like you have documents or you have these like complicated things. You try to read through it and, and, and structure the data so that you can then do other forms of AI on it. But the new AI, the large language models, the chat GPT like things that are represented by like these, these new capabilities, people call them large language models or generative AI. These are so awesome because they can actually handle like the things that people handle, text. It can handle natural language. It can handle like the, the the normal ways that like you communicate with people. And then not only can they understand it, but they can turn around and generate it. And that's just way different from the past. And, and does that change, uh, Ben, does that change what you're doing? And, and really specifically, are you doing things now that you couldn't do in January? Yeah, um, absolutely. Like, uh, so the, um, the, one really? of the distinctions is, is, is the difference between what you call unstructured content and, and, and structured content from the perspective of like, um, you know, if you have things in like databases or you have things in this like um, world of of um, like people put them in these these, these things they call data or data, databases. Um, th- that was often, you know, long history of, of machine learning and AI you could do on that. Lots of, of old capabilities, uh, lots of capabilities. Like um, these are the, 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 the things that you've seen over time with like um, uh, all of the enhancements of, of AI up until a few, let's say, uh, late last year. But then now with these new large language models that not only came, the research evolved, um, but they, they became commercially available and they became very good. This changes because you can actually operate directly on, on the thing you call unstructured content, like think documents, PDFs, meeting notes, um, images, even, even images um, uh, transcripts of, of, of um, the audios and videos, these kinds of things. And this is different. And, and it, because before you could try to like kind of glean some insights from it, are they happier, are they sadder, like, you know, insight, um, sentiment analysis and so on, but now you can actually have it understand and then it turn around and, and regurgitate to you um, uh, uh, very interesting, almost human intelligent like things. So what, um, just in the state of the art, like in the world of, of these new models, they're starting to not only, they can like pass tests, they can like pass human tests. Like you've heard that like GPT 3.5 and GPT 4 can like pass the bar and it can pass. pass the bar, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah crazy. And it can pass like, you know, like um, the high school tests, like AP U.S. History and AP Lit and, and so on. Like, and, and, and it can do it well. And so th- these are things that maybe in the past, if you had a dedicated team, you could actually train them to do these things. Um, like you could, you could train like a model to do well. It's one of these. But these are like a single large language model. Like, like you see it in ChatGPT when you play with it. But it is um, able to do a lot more now. Um, and it does it all. Um, and then that is what's the crazy and different because you don't have to go out of your way to train on every little thing. And of course, in the world of enterprises um, where they have a lot of valuable data, this is actually not on the internet. Right. You can actually use this to then turn around and, and apply it to like some of the most valuable and, and honestly hardest to, to, to understand uh, data inside of your company. And Aaron, what are customers asking for? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, if you think about what what data we hold on to, it's financial documents, it's contracts, it's invoices, it's marketing assets, it's, you know, uh, earnings call scripts. And you have all of this information that you never were able to really interact with at scale um, using any kind of natural language process. And so um, we have well, customer- you could you could search. Right. I mean, you, you, you could interact in that way, but this is different. Yeah, well, you can't really search um, and say, uh, find me the last five earnings calls where companies talked about AI in this particular geography. Like you combining that kind of scent of information in a natural language was just near impossible. And so now for the first time ever, you can basically pour over all of this information you have and interact with it in a natural language way. So you could say, show me the contracts that are uh, have risky clauses in them, or please review this contract and what things should I be paying attention to that I'm about to sign up to, uh, to from a liability standpoint, or uh, find me all the invoices that have a particular set of criteria, but do that in a completely automated fashion where no human ever entered that data in previously. So basically anything, the way that we kind of think about these large language models is imagine any amount of intelligence that one human would have, and you can now send your content to that you know, virtual human, this, this intelligent uh, system, and ask it to do something that a human would otherwise do. You know, read through this 300 page report and find me five key highlights, and it'll do that in three seconds. So all of a sudden, we have this massive amplifier of human productivity because we now have access to um, a machine intelligence that can work a thousand times faster than a human can, and it knows every single domain. It's an MBA, it's a top engineer, it's a financial analyst, it's a marketer, and we now have access to that with all of our data. Um, and so we built this platform to make sure that we can offer a very secure, safe, privacy-oriented um, way to interact with AI models, starting with the uh, the open AI models, but we'll, we'll certainly extend over time. And uh, and yeah, the, the customer kind of demand for this is uh, certainly right now is exceeding our ability to, to meet that demand in terms of enabling customers on the technology. It seems to me that also that, that, you know, the thing that you guys, I was, I was preparing for this interview, I was reading a bunch more on Box that I have, please don't be insulted, but I have not <laughs> read right. all of your filings for all the years that you've been out. Uh, but I, but I have been uh, preparing for this interview and I was surprised to read some of the same criticisms or concerns about the company saying, well, I don't know if they're going to keep up with Microsoft or Google or stuff. Literally the same shit that people were saying before you went public and it just cracked me up. But it's, it, but that aside, um, it, it, it strikes me that the thing that you've been so successful at, one of the things you've been so successful at is the interface that customers like to use. And yep. it seems that that is the area for um, uh, currently for AI, just easier ways to, that, that these tools are out there a little bit, but and they're not exactly clunky, but they don't interface with our work simply. Yeah. And, and this has always been a differentiation for us. And it's funny, uh, you know, uh, you say pre-IPO, we had that that concern. I, I mean, we had that concern in our Series A pitch. So, um, you know, we went from a million dollars in revenue to a billion dollars in revenue with exactly the same set of, of you know, I think. Investor questions. <laughs> investor questions. And it really hasn't changed since uh uh, since we were uh, we were in our, our early twenties, and um, we're we're fine with it. I mean, it's um, uh, we, we'd actually well, if you, you should be at this point, or you should yeah, no, shrink because you know really like <laughs> if you haven't handled that one yet. We, we, I mean, it, I'm sure it'll give me some long lasting trauma in, in other areas, but um, <laughs> but but basically, if you think about it, if you're an enterprise, right, and you are let's say a twenty thousand person company or a hundred thousand person company, so large enterprise, and you have most likely tens to hundreds of millions of, of, of documents and files in your, your organization. 
And first of all, a large portion of these are going to be incredibly mission critical for your company. They can't get leaked. They can't get shared with the wrong person. They have to be accessed from multiple applications. You need to be able to make sure you govern them. And you have to do that all while providing a simple end user experience. So that's like a really hard problem if you think about how do I manage information at scale in an organization. Those are a couple and, of problems even. Yeah. A few problems, so yeah. For well over a decade and a half, we've been building a platform that only goes deeper and deeper and deeper into solving those while still maintaining that that ease of use that you just noted. It was, it was interesting. Um, there was a, a financial analyst note that, that just actually came out um, uh, that that there was a bus tour of 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 analy- of, um, of investors, and we we happened to do a live demo of our AI product, and it was sort of notable to them that, that we did a live demo. And for us, it's like that's just that's how we operate. Like we we try and build really simple products that that you know are going to be accessible by our customers, and that will continue to be our our core differentiator. You know, yeah, for in perpetuity. And 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 the live demo, of course, is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Products. Oh. No, you're, you're just like praying to God that it all goes as planned. <laughs> and AI is always really funny because, uh, you know, AI, you know, can be in a, a different moods at different parts of the day. So, yeah. And I, yeah. And I've, uh, um, yeah. And I've seen all, I've seen all the greats fail with a live demo. I've seen Gates. I've seen uh, 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 Steve Jobs. All those guys have something not work on stage. Um, yep. And I'm gl- glad I wasn't backstage when those things <laughs> happened. Yep, um, yep. Ben, when you t- talk to me about the interaction with uh, OpenAI as a tool that you're using and the hinted at, or the, not even hinted at, but the migration away from that, like why not stay on OpenAI? Why use OpenAI now? Oh, um, so from our view, um, we believe that there's um, a lot of great AI capabilities in the world, and we are not tied to any one particular vendor. There's some great things that, that OpenAI does. They're one of the leaders. Their GPT-4 model is one of the best, if not the best. Um, Google has some great offerings. And then, of course, Microsoft has uh, offerings that they, they, they partner with um, OpenAI on. Amazon came out with a bunch of new capabilities recently, including like Anthropic and Claude. These are all the different model types. We think they're all great. We've noticed that some of them excel in some areas, and some of them are, are better than others. And so our goal is to support all of them because not only because it allows us to give the best product experience overall, but like our customers often have an opinion on, on some of these things. And they say they, they believe that certain models are what they want. So then we, we are supporting all of these as we go through. Now, OpenAI, of course, with one of the, it came out first with one of the best offerings, which is a partly why um, you see a lot of discussion there. But there are other good ones available as well. How do you know what they're good at, what, what they're best at? What's the test look like? Um, so when you're building these kinds of things, like um, it's, it's almost like classic is that uh, um, our classic now in the last like six months is these new AI capabilities are so good that you can actually very quickly get them working. Like this is why you see a lot of like startups and companies like start to offer like, hey, this this works well. Um, we, we try some things. Um, but then um, one of the things that you have to do to be like able to meet the enterprise grade needs of like, you know, some of the, the bigger customers that we have who all have a lot of very serious concerns is that you have to. Um, uh, make sure that they don't just work in one question that you knew ahead of time how to answer. You don't, you have to let it like people, when they interact with these things, they interact with them like they interact with other humans. They, they ask a lot of questions. Um, and so you have to try out all these things. And so, so one of the things we do is we get like work with our customers. They give us um, the kinds of things that they're interested in. We work, we develop our own test sets so that we internally are able to then go through and say, um, how did it, um, any of these models respond to different types of input? And then we notice that sometimes that like some of them are better. Some of them better at metadata extraction, which is like this idea of pulling out the most important data of a, of a system. Some of them are more like kind of verbose. And so they're better for like how they, when, when somebody asks a question like about this document, they're like, you know, explain to me this. They give a better like summary. Um, some of them get more concise. And so we use these in different ways to be, be able to meet the different needs of, of, of um, the type of features that we're building inside, inside a box. Um, it's so been interesting. It's, it's, I've been, I've been creating graphics for our, um, 
for my Twitter account and for the Drill Down Twitter account and using um, uh, Dolly, which is, of course, an OpenAI product, and then using the Bing image creator, which is based on OpenAI. And with the same prompts, I get very different images. And it's 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 really interesting that the, the same sort of the same underlying tool will create something very different for reasons I don't understand. Yeah. And some of them, this actually an option you pick when you're building these things, which is like, how creative do you want them to be at any given time? Like basically that randomness of it. Cause you, like, you'll notice if you just like try some of these large language models, if you ask it the same thing two times, it'll tell you two different things. And sometimes that's wonderful. Like if you ask it to tell you a joke, which it will, and then, and then you, um, you try it three times, you kind of want it to tell you different jokes, but then, um, that, I mean, that's very, for like more of a, like a fun to try thing. But then for like, for us, for enterprise content, of course, like the randomness of the responses are a little bit like you kind of want less of that. So we typically have something called temperature. So we turn down the temperature much lower. And this is an option that these, these models give you. And so possibly what you experienced was that like there's a certain randomness that comes into the models. Aaron was saying it's always fun for demos to see like um, to make sure that you, you have it like um, uh, exactly uh, uh, you've asked the right question. Um, but it is um, uh, it's almost like humans from the perspective of they sometimes answer a little bit differently. Um, Aaron called it the mood. They're not quite in moods, but there's the randomness. <laughs> Aaron, I think um, it's you're in an interesting place given the um, dispersion of large language models and the tools that interact with them because you're kind of Switzerland there in that you can pick and choose and, and it, it, it creates a, an advantage to your independence that, that a Google or an Amazon or a Microsoft won't have or an OpenAI itself won't have. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of like Ben Thompson, um, and Stratechery and he's got this, you know, kind of concept called aggregation theory. Isn't he great? He's, he's great. He's, he's, he's so impressed. I'm annoyed at how impressive he is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just try and exploit the, uh, the insights. Um, so without, without being too annoyed, um, but, uh, but you know, his concept of aggregation theory, we think is very apt, uh, to our strategy, which is, um, you know, the way we think about it is we, we, you know, uh, help or, uh, customers bring a lot of content securely into a cloud platform. And we help, uh, we have the, the, you know, permission, fortunately to manage that, that data for them. And we become an abstraction layer where we, where we can connect to any AI model. Uh, and so we've aggregated the content and now we become this, this, you know, very, uh, obvious landing place where if you want to then leverage any kind of AI model on top of that data, that's what our platform can provide. So the great thing is you don't have to be shipping around your content all the time, just because you want to try a different AI experience uh, because we're going to be plugging into the different AI providers uh, that you want to be able to leverage. And so, you know, we, we talked about a couple at a high level, maybe it would be Anthropic, maybe it would be OpenAI, maybe it'd be Google, but we can imagine in three or five years from now, you could have even very specialized models. Um, you know, we've seen what Bloomberg has done uh, with uh, large language models specifically for finance. Um, we, we've seen, you know, we can imagine what, what somebody like a LexisNexis might do in you know, legal document analysis. And so our ability is to say, we can manage enterprise content securely in a very compliant way, and then connect to the AI wherever it comes from. And that's, that's uh, we believe a very strong position for us. Fascinating stuff, great conversation, guys. Thank you very much, I appreciate it. Box Thanks, CEO Aaron Levy and Box CTO Ben Coos. Coming up next on the Drill Down the Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Box and AI. This one will surprise you when the Drill Down continues. Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. Are right, we are back with the drill down bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot 
Fox just now getting known for its integration of artificial intelligence, but this company is not a newcomer to AI. And they first started talking about AI and SEC filings all the way back in, here's that number, 2017. How about that, 2017? Uh, in a filing, uh, CEO Aaron Levy talked about uh, an important step in advanced machine learning technology. So they have been working on these ideas, Siobhan, for a very long time. The market's now hot, I think, because of chat GPT and the consumer uh, uses of, of AI. But Box has been at this for, you know, six years uh, publicly. And uh, they're starting to see the results from that. Yeah, that's impressive uh, because everyone's jumped on the bandwagon recently. So that's really interesting. Six years ago, they were integrating this advanced technology into their business model. Fascinating stuff. All right. Well, thank you, Siobhan. Thank you for listening to Drill Down, all of you. I'm Corey Johnson, Siobhan Field uh, in Australia, writing uh, lots of great stuff. And uh, glad to have you join us every week. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Siobhan Field, thank you very much. Our fabulous co-host, Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire, The Drill Down, a production of the Business Podcast Network.